0: Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Williams, and you're listening to Know Your Own Psychology. After many years building a successful career as a psychologist, I finally realised that it didn't reflect the autonomy and freedom I wanted in both my life and work. As I made plans to begin working for myself, my husband died suddenly, and my whole world fell apart. But with a young family to look after and big dreams I did not want to give up on, I took some time and in the middle of the global pandemic, I left my old life behind. Today, I'm a private psychologist, digital course creator, mum to five and best-selling author. My mission is to simplify psychological ideas so that you can learn on psychology, influence all the areas of your life and achieve more meaning, freedom and purpose. Are you ready to be empowered? This is Know Your Own Psychology, the podcast. On today's podcast, I am talking to Simone Heng. I first admired Simone from afar when I noticed her at the Hay House Writers' Conference in Edinburgh back in 2022. Holding her already in the flesh book, Simone had a presence about her that was hard to miss. Later, when I saw her updates on social media, tagging the conference that day, I had to follow her and find out more. Simone has a beautiful story to tell, and her book, Let's Talk About Loneliness, recently published by Hay House, is a must-read for anyone wishing to understand the power of connection in an increasingly disconnected world. Simone is also a speaker, having given keynote addresses at Harvard, TEDx and the UN. I loved this conversation and it made it even more special knowing that one day soon I will join Simone as a fellow Hay House author. Get ready to connect. Hi Simone, welcome to Know Your Own Psychology the podcast. I am so honoured to be able to connect and speak with you today on loneliness, the power of connection and your individual psychological story. So thank you so much for being here with me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me and congratulations on becoming a Hay House author. I am so excited for you and the journey and very excited we could finally make this happen. Thank you for your patience.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. And thank you for saying those kind words. And I'll just tell very quickly a short story around um, attending that writers conference and really seeing you stand out from the crowd. You were walking around with your book sort of held to your chest like it was your heart story. And I just, I remember looking for you on social media, found you, followed you, and knew that at some point I'd love to connect with you and speak to you. So thank you so much. Okay, Simone, maybe you can start us off with an introduction on who you are, what you do, and your journey to get to this place.
1: So I was, before I became a speaker and author uh, in the media and entertainment industry for almost 20 years. And I think towards the end of my media career, I became really dis. Engaged and very cynical. I was working in a very toxic radio station here in Singapore, and I could see how loneliness and creating fractures within teams was affecting the product. It was some of the worst radio I'd ever done in my career. And so I started thinking, like How are other organizations being affected by a lack of human connection and equality amongst teams? And then at the same time as this was happening, my mum has a very rare degenerative disease. You can see her on my Instagram, she's adorable. And she was having a lot of issues connecting with me cognitively and also with herself, her own memories, the day of the week, the time of the day, all of this. And on the third part of that, I was also working with a mentor around my speaking, and we were trying to think of topics. And he said, Simone, I've seen you in a room. Like, you are the human connector. And I thought, oh, gosh, I'm not. I think I'm terrible. I think the media has taught me to be so fake like what are you talking about but through the research and developing the keynotes and the book on the topic I feel that I have like risen to that title which certainly I wasn't you know five years ago almost when I started and then the book happened because through the research I looked at the intersection of trauma and human connection how we relate with our primary caregiver effects how we then go on to form relationships as adults and I realized a feeling of you know, lacking of belonging, not just within Australia because I was a you know an Asian kid growing up there, but also lack of belonging within my own family really was the through line of my entire life. I mean, that lacking of belonging in my family is what made me choose to go into the toxic traditional media industry because I got to relive that dynamic over and over again. So if I look at my entire life, I was hijacked by a lack of human connection and a lack of feeling of belonging to that tribe. And I thought, gosh, how many other people are going through this? So when I wrote the book, it was during the pandemic. It was meant to be speakers write books in order to engage more corporate work. That's why you write them. But because of the fight or flight, I think we were all in during the pandemic, it came out of me as this deeply vulnerable, non corporate book to the point I was scared like, what am I going to do with this? I can't give this to a UBS or a JP Morgan or a Meta. Like, this is. TMI but I think the blessing of the pandemic was is that we all were a bit more vulnerable you could see people's children in the back of video you saw your co-workers as a full person and this rhetoric around bringing your full persona to work became really fluent and then that was the perfect intersection and in the end a lot of corporates bought the book when I went to speak and they didn't have an issue with it and then I obviously went over to the Hay House Writers Workshop in Edinburgh where where you were there as well and I literally bought three copies of it. I was sick of it, you know. I when you self publish, like you promote everything yourself, you're sick of it. You never want to see it again. And so I just bought. I, you know, normally I would do a proper gift pack and I would bring it all. Probably I just like gave gave it away to the CEO and to the commissioning editor, and then uh, the lovely Helen uh, read it overnight. And then you know, within weeks, offered me offered me the two book deal. I mean, it's just. It's like somebody, it's like Kate Moss in Croydon getting discovered to be with Storm Models. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And I had written it uniquely, you know, for Asian women of my age. So it was quite interesting that it cut through. It was very universal. So that's the story of how I've, I've come to do what I do now.
0: Amazing, amazing. And I love that you put yourself out there and you didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, it, it's paid off for you. Um, so just as a clinical psychologist, um, speak, you were talking earlier about it, um, you know, being something that just came out of you. And I'm always talking with clients about the practices that can help support our healing from trauma or past experiences. And so therapeutic writing is something that I really leaned on after the loss of my husband. And I just wondered how therapeutic you found that process of writing your book.
1: Well, firstly, babe, I'm so sorry about the loss of your husband. Um, And I can't believe that we're talking about this today because I just finished a chapter today of the second book, which is all around, apologies about my doggos, um, which is all around a a woman who at 39 meets the love of her life. At 40, they get married, he's 55, and then he's diagnosed with stage four cancer and passes away three years into their marriage. And so I had to go through her transcript today and relive this and then match it with stories of my own grief. And because I got such catharsis writing the first book, it was the last thing that I wanted was to refer back to my own loss again. So there's a lot of parts of book two which go, and if you want to read more about it, you can get my first book, Let's Talk About Learners. I'm sure the editors will be like, no, Simone, you can't do this, the whole book. Because I do feel like that first book and how it landed in the world, allowed me to heal so much. Except for the negative Amazon review I got today. I got my first one today. Made Happy it. Amazon review day. Woo! Um, from a Singaporean man who, it was so interesting. I could see that my vulnerability triggered him because culturally we're, you know, as Asians, we're not meant to speak about what happens in our home. And my book is so raw. That I can only imagine um and with a title called let's talk about loneliness he was looking for loneliness strategies but it's not it's a it's a teachable memoir so there's a lot of memoir in there there just is that's the way it is and so it's it's not let's solve loneliness that's not the title it's let's just have a dialogue about it but I could tell that all of it just triggered him so much and he just said you know this book is this woman negatively talking about her family and there's very little loneliness solutions in it, even though there's like a thousand, you know, research studies on human connection. Um, but I thought how fascinating to be conscious as a creative, even though you may be getting catharsis for your own story, we can never predict where anyone else is on their journey. So they might not have that level of openness to vulnerability as we do, and it might be very triggering for them. And, uh, and who knows? In two years from now, whatever I shone a light on in him, he may come back and be like, "Oh, I'm glad I read that book." Um. So it's it's a wonderfully healing process, and I think um I'm going through it now again, and I'm dealing with a different era in my life for the second book, and it's fascinating how the brain just pulls things up. Like I wrote stories from the 2000s when I first entered media. And I always thought, I'm good with these stories. they no one near as traumatic about, like, you know, growing up. I was kind of an adult by this time. And I went to sleep and I was taking some leave in Bali, well-earned post-book launch leave, which you will also discover after yours. And I passed out and a story that was quite traumatic from that era that is not in the second book or in the outline for the second book. I dreamt it. I thought, how fascinating is our brain that it, Works this way, and it pulls from these directions, and you don't know how it's going to come up. And I actually think that's the reason why a lot of people avoid therapy because it is a bit like getting an extraction at the facialist. You're going to have a little bit of congestion, a little bit of redness before it heals beautifully, and people, that is, that is telling somebody it's going to get worse before it gets better is never attractive to human beings we want the quick
0: fix yeah absolutely and you know I am keen to have these conversations with people pre-therapy that actually once you start opening those boxes it is kind of out then and you then have to deal with that and that's a really difficult thing to hear and because as you say people just want to know like I'm going to get through the other side of it but there's a lot of hard work in the in-between and it's, it's so interesting your guy with his Amazon review I kind of think as you see, he's on a journey, but just on a different trajectory. He's found your book. He's known that there's a need to be met there, but for whatever reason, he just can't connect with that message because it's too triggering. It's too, makes it him feel too vulnerable at the moment. And so, you know, I think we can just put our message into the world and hope it finds the right people. And that at one point or another, that will help and support them, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you want to be a messenger or of service mode, you just have to try your best. That's all that I can, I can do. I remember the first time I wrote it, really going back and forth with the self-publishing editors and saying, if this book sounds like I'm complaining about my family, I will not publish it. And they said, no, it's it's, it's your truth. It's even-handed and it shows a story of forgiveness and all of these things. And yet even with that, and even with then a second round of editors and Hay House saying, you know, no and I had an Asian editor for the first round because I wanted to make sure with Asian cultural eyes this would be okay. And then you realize you just can never please everybody. Um, because they are all on different parts of the journey. So it's you can only try your best. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. That's all.
0: Yeah, and actually it's such an important point you raised, Simone, because this idea of like um not wanting to say negative things about your family, not wanting to look like you're complaining or that you don't love them or that you It's literally one of the things that stops people ever doing this work. I see people shrink from this work the minute that they're asked to consider where things might have been better, could have been different. And it's a sense of like, people don't want to blame others and blame the people that they love the most in the world, you know?
1: I think when my, um, you know, my, I was very much like to my therapist, like, why am I like this? Why am I like this in romantic relationships? Why am I like this in friendships? And for her to be like, let's go back to grand zero, your childhood was traumatic. And I talk about in the book, it took me a long time to accept that word to characterize my childhood, because you are indoctrinated within that family system to think that this is normal. And unfortunately for my Asian community was, I was very lucky when I was 17 to get this scholarship to live with three other families in Switzerland. And most people never get that experience to live long-term, I'm not talking on a weekend, six months, three months with different families, three in one year and realize, and you cannot walk away from that niggling feeling that, hey, the screaming, the shouting, the verbal abuse, the walking on eggshells, the criticism, the put downs that I grew up with is not how other families functioned. That was really, really hard, but you, it's evidence. You know i had evidence some people this gentleman who wrote that he could have a similar trauma in his family he thinks it's normal he has never had the chance to live with different family systems so i i think in that way um was i lucky or was i you know the pandora's box was open i couldn't um i couldn't go back and i would say unsee unfeel the difference in my nervous system between living in the houses of families that there was no shouting there was love there was communication I could not turn a blind eye to the difference in how that felt in my body how safe I felt in other people's houses that I barely knew versus the house that I grew up in how can you but that's connection with the self that is calling your own like going hey somatically, my body is telling me something, but a lot of people also don't have that too. I certainly didn't, took a lot of therapy.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and I think that talks a couple of things. One is that sort of mind-body connection. And I very much, um, you know, speak with clients about this idea that you can't heal from your trauma without also getting back into your body and really feeling what it, you know, those changes and feelings and the nervous system regulation, all of that's so important. And actually, that's one of the questions that I was going to go on and ask you, because you talk about in the book, this small tea trauma, the impact of the pick downs and criticism, you know, and, and all of these things happening behind those doors. And many clients of mine come and say, but I've not experienced trauma in my lifetime. And I'm like, actually, no, let's go back to the beginning and let's, you know, examine this, because actually people, as you see, it's been normalized. They have no other, um, any any other sort of model to compare it to.
1: And I think that that's extremely difficult. Like I, there's a saying, if somebody's sanity relies on you being wrong, you will be wrong. So if someone's entire worldview, paradigm, everything is sitting on a foundation that I had a great childhood, everything's normal, my mum and dad was like this, but yet how i'm moving in the world is deeply triggering i'm unhappy i don't sleep i'm stressed i might have addictions all of this stuff is telling them otherwise it is literally about the awakening the realization that hey i want to find out why if everything was great here why is this not easier why is life not a little bit easier for me why am i not more happy that's really tough to do. I'm really glad I, it was very painful at the time doing it. And I thought I was old at the time doing it in my early thirties, but am I glad I did it because I could have married a totally different person. I could be in, there might be no books right now. I might not be living my life's mission right now. I certainly know I wouldn't had I never done the work that I did. And it was extremely confrontational work,
0: you know. And I think what you just said, there talks to meaning and therapy really is all about meaning and the meaning that we make from things. And sometimes it is too difficult for people to expose the difficulties because of what it would mean for their life, what it would mean for the foundation that was built on, this is how my family is, this is how I believe it to be. And actually when therapy comes along, it can sort of turn that on its head. Oh, wait, can
1: I jump in there on that one thing? What actually sent me to therapy was a very big family secret. And I can't, um, It you know, the book is very vulnerable, but there are still things that I have protected because I'm still a human. I still live in the world. But my mother, because of a cognitive disease, had dropped this family secret. And my sister had already known it for a long time. So there was that feeling of betrayal that she was trusted with the secret, but I was not. And then the feeling of guilt that, oh, she had to carry this and I was free, and that explains why our relationship is probably not great, as good as it could be. And then the entire narrativization of my life is now different because of the secret. So what else do I not know? And that's actually what sent me to therapy. So if you're lucky, big secret might be dropped on you, And and then that already starts to work because you're like, well, everything that I thought is not what I thought and uh and and that might happen before you go to therapy and send you into therapy but it might also happen in therapy
0: sure and can you say a little bit about the process of therapy Simone and how you found it
1: uh I found it like you have an ingrown hair (laughs) and you go in and you're like hey I just have this ingrown hair can we just extract this ingrown hair please and then the therapist is like, let's talk about how you may have got that ingrown hair in the first place. And let's go right back to the beginning of, you know, when that follicle opened. And that is what it's like, People, you know, I was, I'm just here to talk about this toxic workplace I'm in. And then it's all my boss's fault. It's all the boss's fault, right? And my therapist is like, tell me about your childhood. And then that was like two years, $20,000 later, weekly therapy. And in Singapore, it's not covered. So I was almost broke by it. I've actually just been writing about it in the second book. It's by far the best money that I've ever spent. There are no clothes, handbags, cars, nothing that can replace the paradigm shift that a great therapist can can give you. So. That's what it was like. I still have maintenance. I still go and see her maybe every once a month, particularly if I have bouts of insomnia, like around the book launch, my serotonin gets really low. So sometimes I need um, that second person to give me a lot of clarity until my sleep adjusts again, never been a good sleeper. And it's such a great feeling of calm, just knowing you have that person to access who is is non-judgmental, who is qualified. So when you come from an ethnic family you can go to your aunt or cousin but you might get some advice that triggers you even more so i believe an unqualified silent hug from a loved one is better than um an unqualified opinion i'd rather a silent hug than an unqualified opinion um from my family and then i go for the talk stuff i go to a qualified person
0: I love that. I love that. And and as you say, so many people come to therapy saying this is a presenting problem. This is what I need the, the help with. And actually, it's often about so much of the backstory and people don't really, you know, people want solutions in their here and now reality, not linked to their past. But it, as you if know, you it- any human being, it's going to get
1: worse before it gets better. No, I want Instagram. I want it immediately. I don't want to write a book. I just want to hand a bottle bunch of transcripts to a ghostwriter and make them write it. I don't, you know, that's the culture we live in. And unfortunately, um the self-work is called work for a reason.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. I love that. Now a bit of a chef now. So one of the things that you motivate in the book, which I found horrifying, was that seeing someone you love pass away connects those of us who have experienced it just so deeply, and we both watch someone that we love and um, pass away, and also in an untimely way, right? And I just wondered how much do you think that complicates the grief process?
1: I think that every, I mean, I was an adult. I was nineteen just an adult. And I think every adult that was in that room that ushered us around my father to say goodbye had not been there and seen somebody else die before. So I don't think that they were aware of how it would even impact them, let alone... I think the thing that traumatised me was seeing aunts and uncles, which in my cultural system, they were held up like gods. I was meant to really respect them be reduced to like animalistic keening. And I think it was shaking that security that in that one incident of watching dad die, all of us together, it made me realize how I wasn't safe. I saw my mortality, but I also realized like these people that are meant to protect me are just human. And the role started to shift. I grew I that's the reason I feel I grew up because I felt like they were not any better equipped to handle this traumatic incident that I was. And so we became peers in that moment. And we're still very, like my uncles and the characters that I, the people that I write about in that story are very much from that time till now my peers versus they ceased that moment to be my um, my older relatives. So I would say that there was a loss of innocence and there was a growing up that I never got back after that moment.
0: Yeah. No, that, that really resonates with me and and also I guess it's, it's a different experience moment but I guess I just really found that in that moment there was a, a real sense of so this is how fragile life can be and it's been such a life lesson for me in terms of I'm no longer going to play small because I don't have time like we don't know how much time we have you know and I think it's a gift and and also a really devastating thing to ever go through in your life. And it just really that in the book.
1: Absolutely. That sense of your own mortality. And I think I've all always been plagued my whole life with not so much now that I'm getting older, but certainly in my twenties, like, how dare she? How does this little Asian girl dare move in the world the way she moves? And that is because of my feelings of urgency, because of the consciousness of our mortality. Yeah, for sure. Changes you at the cellular level.
0: Yes, yes, I think so. It just changes how you show up in the world and how you want to live your life, I think, you know. Um, So thank you for being so open about that. Um, Now, you mentioned this earlier, but I wanted to ask you about forgiveness and how important that has been in your journey of connecting to yourself and to others again.
1: You have no idea how many people that I meet that just cut members of their family off. And um, a great book that I read called What My Bones Know um, by a Chinese-American author, she researches estrangement. She's estranged from both of her parents. And the estrangement expert said to her that estrangement is nothing to be taken lightly people think when you cut people off that there's nothing active there anymore that you kill that pain actually what the research shows is that it's strange that it doesn't kill that the cord between you and that person it's still active there it doesn't dull it um and for me i love my parents so much so much the people are complex you know they're not bad people by any means uh, um my sister and i uh, both live wonderful lives so they, they you know they because of them and in spite of them you know but it was just never an option for me to go that way um and forgiveness for me is the only way to get that healing how how else do we move do we move on if we don't Forgive and how many people have had to forgive me in the years that I was lost and the things that I said and the rage that I carried around because of my grief? How many people had to forgive me? So, who am I not to extend forgiveness to others?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's, it's an interesting one. I talk to clients about this who are struggling with um toxicity in their relationships with people who were in their families. And some make that decision and some choose to take a bit of a break and then be engaged. And I think it, it has to be different for everyone, it has to be individualized. And also I think that you can forgive as well as not spend choosing not to spend as much time with people you don't, you know. You don't have to be spending time with someone to also forgive them. I don't know if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, we all need to get on the boundary train. Like I love watching my Gen Z nieces the boundaries, like we're at a gathering, they don't feel like they want to socialise and kiss all the aunties and hang. they're just like, I'm, I'm feeling a bit quiet today, Auntie Simone, and they just chill out. And we were forced from a young age to let people pinch our cheeks, kiss us, especially in the age house, serve tea, all of these things um, that then put this people-pleasing into my way of moving in the world Particularly around anyone that was older, anyone that was pseudo-family, could be a third cousin, just an auntie by title, not even by blood. And that definitely destroyed my sense of boundaries. And I write in the book, if somebody is mean and nasty, just because they are blood to you, does not mean that you have to go spend time with them. There used to be this thing where the, you know, um, the aunties, it would be like you go to church, and after church on Sunday, you'd visit all the other different aunties. In the Asian community's houses. And I remember getting in the car, and my mum would be talking about someone's house who wasn't clean or someone's food that wasn't good. And I remember thinking, this is not right. I love that, Auntie. And secondly, if you don't like her, why are we going there? This doesn't make any sense, like as a child, right? But when you see that as a child every single weekend, and you think that that is normal. But then luckily for me, I went to live in Switzerland and no one was doing that. It was that much more of a European cultural system of we see our direct family, but this extended family maybe we see once a year at a reunion or at Christmas, but there wasn't this we're obligated to see someone every weekend and then the gossiping around it, like um, I had to really learn to recalibrate that and to say that I don't feel guilty not being part of that system. It gives me peace not to be part of that system and that's okay.
0: Absolutely. I love that. And and it's just so fascinating how we're socialised and conditioned as children to subjugate our own needs, to subjugate our own wants and desires. And I think there is such a process of relearning, certainly has been for me through my sort of mid-30s um, to where I am now. Okay, now you're writing your second book, which you've mentioned for Hay House, and I wanted to ask you what you can tell us about that and any tips for anyone who's listening who's an aspiring author or writer or who just wants to start writing for themselves.
1: Oh gosh, absolutely. I If you follow me online, you know, I just love giving tips away. I love being part of like the knowledge sharing economy. Um, so firstly, the second book is almost like a prequel to the, 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 the book that's come out. So it's all about self-connection. I don't think I'm allowed to reveal the title just yet, but we do have the the working title, but it's all to do with the chapters are structured. Imagine that you go from the deficit of having never even met yourself, that you are asleep brothers and sisters, all the way to the antithesis for me of being asleep, that you have a self-love practice, that you have accepted yourself. So it's this whole thread. So the 15 chapters are structured like that. The middle chapter is literally just interpersonal connection. So... Basically, what I'm saying is before you even get to the place where you are healthily connecting with others, you've got at least seven chapters before you have self-work to do before you get there. So, But that that has been truly my experience. And I don't want to um, imagine if we all were a little bit more aware how our world would change had a beautiful email yesterday from a woman who attended an online speech of recently and then went to get the book. She's 68 years old, adult child of alcoholic parents, estranged from her entire family, multiple bad relationships and marriages. And at 68, she watched that speech, went to get the book, listened to an audible and wrote me, I'm now going to take therapy seriously. I'm retired. I have the time and I'm going to go. And it's game time at 68 adult children of alcoholics is not enough. And I'm going to, and I almost cry. I, I get a lot of these messages now because of the stuff I write is so vulnerable I'll really get it in the comments. People will write very long form to me. Like they know me. It is the greatest I would take impact over income any day of the week to know that you, for every bad Amazon review, there are 20 good ones of you putting your heart on the line and feeling change like that. So my advice for any aspiring author is uh, the advice that was given to me by my book coach, which was your book will be good in direct proportion to how close to the truth it is. So if you write a book that validates you, that makes you look like the master, that's you preaching. And we see this a lot in the self-development space. It's never going to truly connect with people like the one where you say, I make mistakes too. My parents weren't all bad. I was also an idiot. We were all idiots together. And we're sieving through the mess and we're extracting the meatballs from the spaghetti and it's the meatballs that I'm going to write in this book and give to you. And I think when people see that humanity, that really, really helps the the book that you're writing to do the work it's supposed to do in the world.
0: I love that, Simone, and just, you know, how messy it all is and how, but how that, you know, talks to people in a way that um, if everything's tied up neatly with the bow, it just can't. Um, and I really feel like there's something in there about, you know, when you write a book, it's in service of others. It's not in service of yourself. You know, it would be easy not to write books. It would be easier not to put your story out there. And so I think it's amazing that that's having such an impact on the people who are reading your book. Um, and actually, it's so interesting how someone asked me the other day, like, if you could distill down into one word, what it is that you do, like, what do I do? And I was like, wow. And it, the word that came to me was awareness. And you're talking about these same things it's that self-awareness it's that self-reflection and that is the start of everything i think when people come it to- is
1: like even what we know about the lonely brain is that it it becomes irrational and creates a spiral so lonely people and i've been there and i talk about in the book will often say like no one understands my my case is special i'm different and i started thinking as the seed for the second book idea if you didn't have self-connection or self-awareness or even curiosity about yourself you would never be able to discern the irrational thought from the irrational thought created by the lonely brain you would just give into it and that's how that lonely loneliness spiral would keep on going so if I really want to solve this loneliness epidemic I need to attack the question of the self it needs it's part of it um I, I can't wait to see your book in the world. And I love that you approach it from a place of service. And with that, the last tip for this question is ask yourself why you want to write the book. For me, I, I couldn't keep it down anymore. It had to be written. It, it came out as its animal. It was meant to be corporate. And like, this is how you connect with your colleagues, you know, and it just wouldn't come out that way. It wouldn't allow me. And four and a half weeks, the first draft flew out. And interestingly, the second book is also the same, about four and a half weeks, but a lot less stressful because you've done it once before but I I think that question of why do I want to write this now if the answer is that you um want to get catharsis for your pain you can write it it doesn't necessarily need to be published but if it's catharsis in service of others then I think that's more valid you know I think that service elements it really changes the tone of the book as well how it's written
0: I love that Okay Simone um last question so I ask lots of my guests this question um so what do you know now about your own psychology that you didn't know before?
1: um I know that I am a love addict and this goes in platonic as well as non-platonic relationships which means I constantly need to be aware of giving too much of chasing people's affections and of projecting my own need for love, over the reality of what the dynamic of that relationship might actually be. So, you can see for me how much studying human connection has actually helped me personally. Um, you know, particularly looking at things like reciprocity is very important for me. Um, because without looking at reciprocity, you can't form good boundaries. So, you're just giving all that energy away all the time. To this day, I reply to every email, every single DM across all my social media. I don't know anyone with like 200,000 over followers that does this, Um, but I do know eventually I might have to have a boundary on that because it's probably not tenable, but I know that that is also linked to this need for love. I love being in contact and connecting with people. Um, And so I have to watch that.
0: I love that, I love that. And that talks to that boundary issue again, does not it? And that need for attachment and all those kinds of things. Yeah, Simone thank you so much for being here today I'm just so thrilled that we were able to have this conversation finally and um, I know that it's going to impact on so many people so thank you for being here with me thank you so much Dr Laura it was a pleasure are you based in Edinburgh I'm just outside Edinburgh yeah I am
1: oh okay so I'm going to be in London at the Writers Workshop again soon but you are going to be in Edinburgh but we will meet again soon I am sure at a Hay House thing
0: sure we will thank you Simone you my love congratulations again Bye. thanks for listening to this episode of know your own psychology if you loved it please share it on facebook or instagram for your friends and family and if you really want to help me out drop a review on apple podcasts if you have any questions you can email me hello at dr And if you would like to know your own psychology better, influence all the areas of your life and achieve more meaning, freedom and purpose, come and join my growing community over on Facebook. Search Know Your Own Psychology and make a request.